Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Indie Football Podcast Award-nominated, lest we forget. Uh, it's International Week, which means... Uh, a week off from the humdrum of Premier League football, and we say that craving its return. Uh, the the high caliber, incredible quality of Premier League football dearly missed uh, with some of the international stuff we've seen. Although, you know, as we'll talk about, there is some some stuff out there this weekend with some great meaning and uh, some stuff out there with uh, just a bit more fun. So uh, obviously, I can't do that on my own. So this week, I've got Jonathan Liu, chief sports writer of the Independent, alongside me. Hello, Jonathan. How are you? Hi, oh, Ed. Yeah. It's very cold, isn't it? It's uh, very cold. Uh, I tell you, this country is a, a godforsaken place, and I don't know why anybody lives here. Also on the mic this week, got producer Matt Murphy. Uh, say hello, Matt. Hello. Uh, first uh, first time on the mic, I believe. We've got uh, Miguel is in. Either in Copenhagen or Dublin, I can't remember which one. He was in Copenhagen. But I, I think, think he's he's in transit, maybe maybe so, swimming. Yeah, so he's currently in the North Sea somewhere, um, swimming to Dublin, and and Jack is in Switzerland where he watched Basel. I don't know. He's in Basel where he watched Switzerland beat Northern Ireland one 0 over two legs uh, to reach the World Cup. Uh, from what I saw. Johnny, I don't know if you saw much of that. They were the better side over the two legs. Northern Ireland didn't have much. No, I mean. What they had, of course, is grit and determination <laughs> yeah. and passion and the green and white army Off and the charts and all of those and Jerry Armstrong. They had if if football was won on Jerry Armstrong rather than the more traditional measure of goals, I think Northern Ireland would be not just uh, at the World Cup but seeded. Uh, yeah, they didn't they didn't create a huge amount, uh, and there seems to be this this real uh, sense of injustice. Uh, surrounding Northern Ireland's failure to qualify. Um, oh, it was the penalty decision in the first leg. The penalty decision was a complete joke, though. Yeah, well, it, it wasn't a penalty. But I, I also think you don't get to go to World Cups unless you score a goal. I think that mm. should be a minimum requirement. Mm. It feels like it feels like that should be uh, the bare minimum. Um, also, if you are unfortunate enough to concede a penalty like that, try to make sure your wife doesn't racially abuse... Uh, the referee, <laughs> it's to the most comical extent, where, uh, I, I don't know if you read this, it is on, it is on our website, if you search for Corey Evans Independent, I'm sure you'll find it. Corey Evans' wife, um, very uh, insulting about the referee, uh, made numerous racial slurs towards Romanians, and then says, anyway, onwards and upwards, a little green heart, <laughs> a little green heart <laughs> oh, was... A phenomenal touch. Matt, did you catch any of uh, the Northern Ireland game the other night? What I think is incredible, I, I saw the, the, the first leg. I, what I think is incredible is a lot of people are comparing this to the Henri moment for for Ireland, the Republic of yeah. Ireland. And that came at the, the in the second leg at the very last moment. And that, therefore, is an injustice. They had another leg and a, a half to deal with it. Um, I, I think they're both injustices, in, injustices. Uh, <laughs> I, I prefer the pronunciation. Um, they are both injustices. The Henri thing was just just mental because it was so late, so obviously cheating. Because th this isn't no player has actually cheated uh, really here. You know, the, the referee 
has made and it's always funny i think when you watch these things when referee makes a bad decision and they know they've kind of screwed up and you immediately see them they double down on it they go harder usually they put out a yellow card because they're like you know no no i'm, I'm really so sure. sure i'm yeah. absolutely positive this was definitely definitely the right decision it's like we both know that you're guessing yeah i mean yeah. The, the, about the most we will criticize a referee for is being incompetent I mean, the traditional chant that goes, you don't know what you're doing, which I always find quite quite sweet, really. It's like, well, you're trying. You're trying hard, but you, you don't actually know what you're doing. It's, it, we, we'd never accuse a ref of, you know, deliberately cheating. It's not. Uh, it's, it's just not something that we do. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's a completely different... It's a different thing from the, from the Henri handball, which needed so many different people to do so many unlikely things uh, that it, it, it just felt almost shocking. And whereas... Uh, dodgy penalty decisions, you know, we've all had them. We had one in, in five-a-side yesterday. You know, they happen. Any more details on the, on the shock on five-a-side? They missed. Oh, they missed that. So that's all that matters. The other thing is as well that they went over to Switzerland and Switzerland have lost two games at home in the last 16 years, mm-hmm. which is just, you're never going to go over there and, and win when you've got um, a home record like that. But overall for Northern Ireland, the neutral will look at this and think, you know, we've lost out on a huge... Um, amount of supporters that come over and bring an incredible atmosphere to two, anywhere. Two things about Switzerland. One, um, they have successfully gamed the the, the FIFA World Rankings thing, uh, as we discussed on a previous podcast, so that they've got a great seeding and, and great everything. Two, they're a much better team than Northern Ireland. They were dominant in the first leg, which they probably marginally deserved to win. Uh, they were a better team in the second leg, Obviously, there was the big chance that Northern Ireland had where you're wondering what if. But again, as, as Jonathan said, you do need to score goals if you want to make it to the World Cup. And, and as great as it would have been for Northern Ireland to get there, um, it's just, unfortunately, a better team going. And I think Switzerland will be one of those teams that will probably get picked out as dark horses, I guess, going into the into the competition because they're, they're well coached. They're effective. Don't concede many goals. And they do their bit. Um, the, I guess the next team we should discuss because they did play uh, the world champions on Friday night. Was it was England against Germany? Uh, Johnny, you saw some of this. Ruben Loftus Cheek is the obviously the big story coming out of this game. What do you make of uh, him? What do you make of, of England, the young England side we saw? Yeah, I mean Loftus Cheek was, I think one of the one of the most impressive debuts. I've seen for England since, gosh, maybe Ricky Lambert. But really? No, no. I mean I'm Rooney. Just, I mean Rooney's the yeah, one, no, right? That, that was a, a slightly tongue-in-cheek there. But given his age, given the fact that he wasn't playing really in the, in, the, in uh, on, on the wing or you know one of one of the less pressured roles, but he was essentially England's number ten against Germany, and the especially in the first half, uh, the way that he carried the ball, the brazenness with which he just wanted the ball in in, in tight spots and was prepared to you know to do interesting things with it was uh was the most impressive thing uh i i haven't seen a huge amount of him for palace but he's i think he's always kind of had that in his locker but i think even then it is it is something of a surprise that he's he's managed to to pull out a debut like that on that stage well i had one of those beautiful moments where i did a big pre-match feature about Ruben Loftus-Cheek and how he was definitely good enough to play for England and should have been here sooner. And then he obviously plays really well. So you feel like an, you feel like a genius, even though you really are. Um, the, I know I know a couple of people that know Ruben quite well. And 
fundamentally, they said that he could have been in England's first team at 19. He, like, he could have been actually now at 21, the guy they're talking about as potentially an England captain because he's always had this talent. And um, at 16, he had a big decision to make of signing that first professional contract with Chelsea because they weren't sure about whether he'd get first team football. There were a couple of different agents trying to fight to sign him. Eventually, he leaves his he leaves his old agent um, and then signs for a new agency, um, which also represents some, some other much bigger names. And in one de- in a couple of the, the deals that have been lined up, he had guarantees of, of going out and playing playing senior football somewhere. It might not be a Ch- it might be a Chelsea or it might be you go on loan to League One or, or the Championship or whatever. But like gradually increasing the amount of senior football he's guaranteed per season which I think is a great way of doing it because it guarantees progression, be that at the club or not. Instead, because of a variety of conflicting interests. Now we know, for example, Roman Abramovich wants to, he wants to see players getting from the academy through into the first team. But then you've got players, like, uh, coaches like Jose Mourinho coming through and you've got Conte coming through and these, these guys, who've got, they've got their different ambitions. Like Conte is, you know, he, he likes being at Chelsea, but he's in it for himself. Fundamentally, he wants to, do these things and, uh, to make himself more successful. That's why he wants to spend all this money. But I felt like Loftus-Cheek is one of those who just really suffered um, from... And you think about how, mi- how much money Chelsea spent on midfielders, centre midfielders in that time. It's because no manager will go into a season wanting to rely on this guy. But that, what that has meant is that over his career, he's got 11 Premier League starts up until this point. And then he goes and he plays in this game and, and he is up to the level. I've seen a bits of it at Palace this year. And the thing that's interesting is, is a lot of people have talked about Spurs being the model maybe for this England team. And uh, it was actually Ben Burrows, uh, the sports news editor, uh, the Independent, who was talking about this the other day. And he said, if you think about that three at the back and you've got, you know, if you had the England team and you've got three at the back and you've got Walker and, and Rose on, on either side, which is ex-Spurs and, and current Spurs, you've got Harry Kane and Deli Alley as a kind of strike partnership, you know, a split strike partnership you've got Eric Dyer who's the holder um, then you've got two midfield spots but Lallana yeah well Lo- Loftus-Cheek is a guy who's a bit like Moussa Dembele in the way that he is a strapping guy who picks the ball up and he carries he carries the ball and there aren't actually many English midfielders who pick up the ball and, and carry it through the thirds the only one I can think of is Jack Wilshere and Jack Wilshere obviously has has his own problems so Loftus-Cheek might be an answer just because he has a very unique skill set He's young, and and Southgate knows him from from the youth ranks. So I just think that there might be something there that we could build on. One, sorry, I was going to say one nice thing is as well to see from from the perspective of Ruben Loftus Cheek is to see someone come through the Chelsea system that has played for Chelsea in that way and could eventually go back to Chelsea and and play in that team. He was one of the few of the ridiculous amount of loanees that has. You know, played yeah, for yeah. Chelsea. It, 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 he's doing well at Palace. Um, you know, well, you can say anyone's doing well at Palace. But um, but if you know, if you, if this is anything to go on, eventually he could be one of those players who's finally brought back and comes into that Chelsea team and, and makes a starting lineup. Well, I think the, the lesson here, and, and I know that every week we sit here and have a go at, at Mourinho for some reason, right? But it's the the fact that he's been at Chelsea for four or five years now. Uh, it eight. Yeah, well, right. Well, it, it almost kind of shows that talents like this are such a long-term project that they almost need to be taken out of the hands of coaches. Conte uh, 
you know, I'm sure he's interested in Loftus Cheek as a, as an idea, but Loftus Cheek is he's a five or six year project, and Conte's might you know, he's probably not going to be at Chelsea in twelve months, and the incentives just aren't there. So it, it's it's almost as if the club have to manage them because they know that the manager won't. Well, that brings us to an important and fortunately relevant topic. Michael Emanalo, who who left Chelsea, was that last week or the week before? Um, he's gone. Um, and Michael Emanalo is a guy who's, who's frequently been criticised over his time. And I think part of that is the, the weird inherent British distrust of a, the sporting director role. But if you look at Chelsea as a club, I can't remember how many managers they've had over the last 10 years, but it's probably about, you know, seven to 10 managers. And they have consistently been one of the most successful teams in the Premier League, barring basically that one season under Jose Mourinho where they finished 10th or wherever it was. And that was obviously beyond the pitch in terms of complete cluster uh, as to what happened there. Michael Emanalo is basically the, the steadying influence that has meant that even with the coaches coming through, uh, even with all the changes going on, the, the consistency is a high level of football. You know, the whole issue is with the, Brit, the classic British manager thing is that the manager gets sacked and everyone has to change. The whole coaching staff goes, and so it's a whole new start for the players. It's a whole new start for everything else. What, you, what you're basically saying is this is the direction of this club, the sporting direction of the club. We're all heading this way, and the coach will hop on for the ride, and then the coach might hop off or be pushed off in other instances. But broadly speaking, you know, all of our kids are being trained in the same way. All of our best young players are being coached up with an idea of eventually being this. And it's exactly what you're saying about Loftus-Cheek is, is in many ways, Michael Emanalo is, is the reason that this guy is playing for England right now. And Michael Emanalo's role was probably sadly underappreciated and, and, and now he's gone. Yeah, and, and I think we, you can't really underestimate the the work he did in, in building and maintaining relationships, which is such a which is such a, an important part of of recruitment and, and how you you know how you, you hire players and you hire managers. Um, he was <clears throat> he was one of those guys who I mean people have this idea of, of recruitment that it's it's kind of like going to a shop and buying something and you just have to find the right shop and you have to find the right product. But it, it's it's about maintaining relationships with all the like myriad agents and middlemen and and, and Eminem, you know, to all accounts was was very good at that kind of stuff. And the fact that he was there for for that period of time allowed Chelsea to to develop a kind of long-term thinking. Now, you could argue that with their loan prospects, uh, it's only really been in the last three or four years that they, they've given them the kind of pastoral care and attention that, that they needed. I mean, the uh, you know, the stories were that five or six years ago, it, it wasn't, wasn't a happy place to be at all, but it, it's a lot more joined together now. And that kind of shows the virtue of having a long-term approach beyond the next 12, 24 months. And you, you wonder with regards to Chelsea, what happens next? Because, so they'll, they'll presumably bring in a replacement, um, as far as we understand it. That's something to be decided between Roman Abramovich, uh, Marina Granovskaya, and um, Eugene Tenenbaum, the three directors at the club. So if they bring in a... I think who the, the, who this person is who comes in will tell us a lot about the direction of Chelsea. If it's a Roman Abramovich person, then I think we're going to see the club continue in the same direction, because... Roman is actually, you know, again, a maligned but very quiet owner. But he put Emanalo in place and that's what's kept the club going. And, and he trusts in Granovskaya um, to do her thing. And, and she's been very successful in doing what she does as well. There was obviously a slight disconnect between Emanalo working with people and Granovskaya working with people. That's fine. But um, 
if we see more of a Conte ally come in as sporting director, which I think is unlikely, but it's a possibility, that's when I think things start going slightly awry. Um, you know, there was talk of, of Man United bringing a sporting director about a year, 18 months ago. And if you brought in a Jose Mourinho ally, a sporting director, can you imagine how that changes the power dynamic within the club? And it's it's a concerning thing. But I just, I think it's an in- interesting thing to keep an eye on. And I think with the context of Loftus-Cheek, um, seeing what Michael Amanalo has done has, has been undersold a bit. It's an incredibly uh, complicated process. That, that they're, It's an incredibly complicated recruitment process that they're going to have to go through because they can't just hire a sporting director off the shelf they you know they they almost kind of tried that with frank arneson uh, <clears throat> a decade ago and it really didn't work out they can't just pick somebody like a camoli or a paul mitchell off, off the shelf because they need to fit in with the existing and unique power structure at chelsea they need a personal relationship with abramovich with granov sky with bruce buck and tenenbaum and they need to, they almost need to be inculcated in in that kind of big super club, big Russian super club mentality, which is why I I reckon more than replacing Conte or replacing uh, Mourinho or or Hiddink, you know, years ago, this is possibly the most important appointment that Chelsea will make in in, in the the current decade. Sounds like a column you should write next week. But the the thing with this role is trust. You've got to have... So, like Abramovich is going to have to trust this guy because you're putting him in charge of the sporting direction of your football club. Um, the coach has to trust him. Everyone has to trust him to bring in the right players and to and to know the right things to do to oversee the academy and and the women's team and, and all these other things. So, you either go for a, you know someone who's a renowned talent spotter, a, you know a, a big scouting guy. So like that's what Barcelona did with um, Ariado Brida, the Italian guy. You bring in someone who's who's a specialist at spotting talent and and has the, the network to bring in talent. But then is that a guy necessarily who you could have overseeing all the youth teams in the direction of them? It might be a job for two people. Um, and we've seen that, I think, at different clubs where they've realised that and you have to split the role. Um, a quick advert break, uh, as I say, if you could head to the Football Sports Federation website where uh, this podcast has been nominated for an award. If you've listened this far in, you must be a super fan. And thus, uh, if you just go on there to vote in the awards, you also find, I think, at the bottom, uh, Jonathan Liu has been nominated for Writer of the Year. So you can you know, vote for one, vote for both. Uh, don't vote for neither. That's the worst thing you could do. Um, but yeah, just, just head to their website. Uh, it's very re- close. It's, it's very close. There's, there's literally one vote in it. Yes, no, no, I've heard that, and, and you could make the difference. Um, is the intel we have? So uh, go on there, make a difference in the world today. You know, make make the poor people happy. You don't need to go to a polling station either. No, right. no, no. The, the polling station is your mouse. That's uh, that's how easy life is now. Um, the internet has changed our lives in many ways, but mainly you could make me happy via the medium of the internet. So, uh, yeah, that's the Football so- Supporters Federation Awards. If you go on their website and vote, then I promise we'll continue to talk about football. Um, Ireland-Denmark is is the big one now, I guess, for the the British Isles, because they're not actually, they're not British technically. So the, uh, the southern part of Ireland, Matt, uh, plays Denmark. And if they win, they're in the World Cup. Is it, this will be the first time since 2002, 2002. that complete nightmare? Yeah. Um, uh, about which uh, Miguel Delaney famously wrote Stuttgart the Saipan, the uh, the book on that qualification campaign. But do you not just want to see Denmark and Christian Eriksen at the World Cup next year, Matt? 
No, you're asking a Murphy, but at the same yeah. time, <laughs> uh, <laughs> a small red-headed Murphy <laughs> yeah. would like Ireland at the World Cup. Also is that wearing what you're saying? green right now yeah. as well. Yeah. Literally, couldn't have asked a worse question. I think with the way that Ireland play, um, they you, you would rather see Denmark um, at, at the World Cup. To be to be completely honest, the, you prefer their football, and at the same time, Ireland always always just flop. They, they do always, play. They, they do, do play Ericsson in a weird role though. Um, it, it's almost more offensive to me to have good players and badly use them. Uh, the obvious guy, Mark Wilmot, the Belgium coach at the last two major tournaments, uh, should never get a job again uh, for what he did to that Belgium side. He's also, where has he just been in charge of? Was he just in charge of the Ivory Coast and managed to not get them to the World Cup as well? Um, shame on you, Mark Wilmot, uh, however good you were as a player. Uh, so Ireland perhaps don't have the same qualities to bring to a World Cup, but they do have Roy Keane, Johnny. Yeah, they got they got Roy Keane. They have Martin O'Neill. Uh, they're like a, a, an, an ageing pair of detectives in a in a maverick Hollywood movie. Um, Did you hear what Shay Given said the other day about that? No. He said, uh, with those two, it's bad cop, bad cop. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it is like the two detectives. Um I thought Roy Keane was phenomenally interesting at the Euros. He's obviously like a deeply troubled man. I don't know how else to say it. He's fascinating. It's so weird because you always thought that was like an on-pitch persona at Manchester United and you thought, oh, he's probably good friends with Gary Neville and the lads off the field or or whatever. No, 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 genuinely. You get the impression that if they never saw each other again, they would not care. You, know, you talk about the class of 92 and those guys going off and doing their thing. Roy Keane is very much out of that. You feel he very much disapprove of that. I remember there was uh, there was a United player, I think it was one of the class of 92, who said they went to an awards dinner where they were receiving an award and they sat right next to Roy Keane. Roy Keane came along. He sat right next to him and didn't say no word to him the entire evening and then didn't even clap when he got up to it and he, and he walked away and they just didn't say anything to each other and the awards dinner was for him. There's a persona there, and I mean, he's a smart guy, Roy Keane. He's and he knows there's a persona there, and he's almost reached the stage in his career where he, it's something he can turn to his advantage. He certainly did it during his playing career. That the reputation of Roy Keane oh, yeah, yeah. preceded him like a shadow through a doorway. And I was talking to Shane Duffy at Brighton before before this round of international fixtures, and he said that he doesn't say a huge amount, but obviously when he does, it's it, it's got triple the value. Yeah, because, it means a lot, yeah. Because, you know, not only does he not say very much, but he's Roy Keane. It's like concentrate. It's like Ribena, you know? Yeah. Like, like, it really hits you. Like really good squash. Yeah. You know, intro, I mean, slight tangent. Squash, not really a thing elsewhere, you know? In like, other countries. Like in America, like, pff, you talk, ask about squash, they think you're talking about pumpkin. You're not, you're just not getting, you're not getting a Ribena. You're not getting that sort of thing. Um, in, in Scotland, meanwhile, juice just means any fizzy drink. And... Uh, I lived with a girl from Northern Ireland at university and she would refer to squash as diluting juice, which is like diluting juice, diluting juice. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, slight tangent. We'll go back to the football. Um, Shane Long, Jonathan Waters, the the Premier League six out of ten heroes that could propel Ireland to the World Cup. Uh, but you're looking, at, you're looking at the lineup now. I think the World Cup lineup is starting to look pretty interesting. There's only at the time of recording, which I appreciate will be horrendously out of date when some of you listen, uh, 28 of the 32 teams have been decided. Um, there are obviously some good teams missing, but largely we've got a good tournament in the making. Looking ahead to Russia next year, 
If you had to pick a favourite now, who who are you going for? If it's played tomorrow, Brazil. I and and what's interesting is obviously with them coming to Wembley, we'll be able to write a nice amount about Brazil. But they are probably and and I can't remember the last time this was the case. Going into a World Cup, they are the best team probably in the world at the moment. They they did so well to eventually see uh, stop vibrating. Um, they eventually overlooked all the glamour names as coaches. Uh, they went back to Dunga, which was a dreadful idea first time. It was a dreadful idea second time. And they brought in Chiche, who, who was so good with that Corinthians team. He's made them into a professional unit. Um, I do think this Neymar story is going to run and run. I think it's going to rumble on. Probably, to be honest, it's going to go all the way through the World Cup, isn't it? Because even if you know if, if PSG get knocked out of the Champions League in dramatic fashion or if they win the Champions League in dramatic fashion, Neymar's still going to be the most expensive player in the world. It's going to be the big story. But he he was supposed to be their star at the World Cup, got stretched off of that back injury. Then the, the trauma happened, the, the 7-1. He needs to... He sees you know, that he needs to be a central part of a Brazil success. But do we... Do we actually think that, you know, in Russia, that's the sort of thing that happens? Because a lot of Brazil's successes has been in tournaments in more far-flung places. I don't think they've... I'm trying to remember. They they won the Sweden World Cup, was that, in the they, 50s? They won Sweden. It's the, I think, the only time the only South time American Europe. team has won uh, in Europe. Yes, yeah. that's, that's how I remembered it. So playing in Russia might be more conducive to someone like Germany winning it. And, of course, Germany... Have, I know the game the other night was a bit of a joke, really, considering the teams that are out there. But when Germany are at full strength, do you, do you think they're going to be the closest challengers? Well, I mean, I think the continental uh, the continental thing is is almost a little bit of a, an irrelevance these days. Seeing as pretty much everybody plays their football in the European leagues, and and if you look at the Russian league, uh, it's full of Brazilians. I mean, Brazilians uh, are they populate every country in the world, and. Uh, for all their tribulations in the last two decades or so, there is still no country on earth that produces a higher volume of quality footballers. I mean, Neymar was arguably, you know, the, it was it was arguably Neymar's team in the World Cup, and, and when he went, their heads went. They they have a lot more to them these days. I mean, I read about Paulinho this morning, who who has undergone something of a renaissance uh, at Barcelona. They got they got Casemiro and Gabriel Jesus coming through. Um, it's a really good team. I think Germany have had their moment, and I think they've they've reached they've reached their peak in in Brazil. And what's coming through now is a lot of young players who essentially play quite a similar sort of game. And whether they ha- whether they have enough of a mix uh, of, of talent and experience and, and and what have you to to really you know muscle their way to the to the latter stages of a tournament. I'm still, I'm still not quite convinced of that yet. I'm saying Brazil. I'm saying probably France. Uh, yeah, and, France, and, France have got the depth and talent. And Spain, and, and Spain, very Spain good. obviously. Uh, Matt, anyone else that you're looking at? I was going to say Argentina only just sneaked through, but if they continue to offer that same quality, then they might, they might be a surprise in there. But they've never really done well. At, at with with San Paoli, I mean, it did. <laughs> he had a tough start, basically, but. San Paoli got in there and he's he's changed that team enough so that they are there, they're at the World Cup. And then from here on, it's purely about 
just getting the team as well drilled as possible in his in his shape. He's got six months basically to prepare them for the World Cup, and I think he could do it. Um, but Hit Lionel! Hit Lionel! <laughs> he doesn't sound like that. Uh, that's probably about time we've got uh, about time we've got all for uh, all we've got time for uh, today. Just a, a brief international break podcast for you. I know Johnny has to dash for an interview, so uh, thank you to Jonathan Lou for popping by. Uh, as I said. Please vote for him as writer of the year. If he doesn't win, we'll know you've let us down. Matt Murphy on the mic today and also producing. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, good luck to anyone else trying to qualify for the World Cup. I know I certainly will be. So have a good day. We'll talk to you soon and uh, next Monday for the Indie Football Podcast. Goodbye. (laughs) 